Okay. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody this, uh, this afternoon. Um, I see some people that I've, I've not met. My name is uh, Eric Welsh, and I am, I, I guess you could say, like, like a pastor in training, kind of, is kind of where I'm at right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Ryan's not here, so every now and again, I get the, the blessing and the, uh, the privilege, the great privilege of being able to open up God's Word and, uh, and share it with you. So uh, today, um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we are going to be reading out of the book of Malachi, chapter 3. The book of Malachi, chapter 3. And our, our, uh, our text is going to be verses 1 through 7. I thought that this would be a, a, a fitting uh, topic today, a sermon today, uh, given that, you know, next week is, is Christmas and we're celebrating the Incarnation. Um, I, I thought it would be good to look at the, the, the events that took place prior to that incarnation, the recorded events that, that took place before that, uh, so we could get a, a good understanding. So um, let's go ahead and pray, ask the Lord for his illumination, and then um, I'll go ahead and start to read. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, God, for this day. I pray, God, that you, uh, that you by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that, uh, that he would uh, illuminate the text for us today, God, that he would open our eyes and open our hearts uh, God, I ask that you would move me out of the way, and all that is there is is your spirit proclaiming forth the truth, feeding its people. So uh, we ask this, God, be with us, be gracious to us, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphans and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed from the days of your fathers. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So this, this passage, this messianic text uh, prophecy might seem familiar to you. Um, if anybody's familiar with uh, Handel's Messiah, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a great, great work uh, done by, uh, by Handel. Uh, th this song or this, this passage of scripture is actually one of the songs. It's the seventh song. Uh, he shall purify is what it's called. If you haven't listened to Handel's Messiah, reserve about two hours for yourself and go in and, and, and listen to it. It really is a, a fantastic work. Um, so we'll notice right here at the beginning. Um, so behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Uh, we know from the New Testament that he's speaking of John the Baptist, right? This is clearly John the Baptist. John the Baptist was spoken about in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, so uh, the, all of this is, is consistent, um, followed by the Lord who will suddenly come to his temple and who can endure the day of his coming. This is a judgment text, right? Um, some of you might be saying, like, 
we shouldn't do like judgment texts like so close to Christmas. You know what I mean? Like this is the time of, of joy. Are you really, really going to start with the judgment text? Uh, yes, yes, and amen. Because uh, this is how this is how we see the. Uh, uh, we have to have it against the backdrop of of human failure to really behold the glories of what God has done for us, right? So um, I think it's I think it's really important that we we do this. Um, so Malachi, if you think about it, this is the last uh, book in the Bible before John the Baptist comes onto the scene. There's a 430 year period between the words of Malachi here and when John the Baptist comes as the forerunner for Christ, right? Calling everybody to repentance. So this is really a forerunner for the forerunner, right? This is Malachi who's preaching the exact same thing. Look, look at verse seven. For from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He is beckoning these people in Israel to come to repentance, right? So um, this is really, you, you you're not going to get this just from reading the book of Malachi in a vacuum. This is an absolutely astonishing moment in the history of Israel. Not that he's calling them to repentance, but the timing of it. The timing of, of when this is taking place in Israel's history. Um, the circumstances here are really bad, and the timing of this prophecy is absolutely mind-blowing. So um, let me give you an example uh, from our day to explain the circumstances. I, I want to talk about the circumstances and the sins that are, are going on at the time. Um, have you ever been in a relationship, uh, I, I hope this is not the case, um, or perhaps witnessed someone, uh, witnessed a relationship that is, that is about to end? You know, um, perhaps, you know, it was a family member or, or maybe even a relationship that you've been in yourself. Um, there's, it's that, that moment where, where the final straw has, has, uh, you know, the, the final straw has landed on the camel's back and in, in divorce or, or, or breaking apart is imminent. It is, it's this thing that's coming down the road, but there, there's a, there's a period of, of apathy, right? Where, where nobody really cares, you know, for one, it's, it's very, very cold and very, very dry. Um, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it, if you've ever experienced that, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's painful. It's, it's, it's weird. You know, you, the tension, you can feel, cut it with a knife. That is what's going on, uh, here, uh, at this time that Malachi is giving this prophecy. Okay. So, um, as a result of, of some of the sins that they've been committing, God has, uh, you know, he disciplines his children. Um, as a result of these sins, he, uh, the, the nation is, is experiencing droughts and they're experiencing other hardships. <clears throat> um, and they have, uh, uh, become hardened to God almost completely. So, but it's the timing. I said before, it's the timing that's so shocking here. You realize when this prophecy is given, only 14 years prior to this moment, the walls of Jerusalem were completely rebuilt. They were, they were, they were done being rebuilt. And it was a matter of, I mean, a matter of days that it took these guys in, in, in their excitement. We, we read this about, about this in the book of Nehemiah, right? And only uh, uh, 11 years before the, the walls were rebuilt, we have the temple being restored by Ezra. So he's coming in and he's restoring the temple, right? Um, um, and 60 years prior to Ezra restoring the temple, the, the, found, or the, the, the temple itself was completed. What timeline does this put us in? It puts us in the time where God had brought his people who were in exile and he'd made safe passage for them and brought them to the land of Israel. Guys, 
this was a, a, a moment of monumental excitement. These people were in a far off land with people who were not their own under God's judgment. And he has done this miraculous thing by bringing them back to their homeland. We're only a hundred years removed from this. How can you go from one moment of, of, of sheer joy and excitement? I want you guys to see this. Turn to Ezra chapter three. Turn to Ezra chapter three so you can get an idea of just how significant this moment is. Uh, what we're going to do is um, we're going to be reading verses uh, 10 through 13. 10 through 13. Um, so, oh, whoops, that's Nehemiah. Sorry about that. As you can see, this is why I said pastor in training. Okay, Ezra chapter 3, um, verses 10 through 13. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers of households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and with the sound that was heard far away. We see this moment given to us in Ezra chapter 3 that is, is when you factor in what these people were going through. There was no place. How was, how was their sins atoned for with no temple? How were these people going to be right before God when they had no place to carry out what God had given them for their sins to be forgiven? And they had spent many years in exile with no home of their own. And here they are back into their homeland and they see the foundation for the house of the Lord, the one that had been completely destroyed prior to this. And they see the foundation. How good is God that he remembers his covenant with his people? that he's brought us all the way back to this land so for us to worship him. And there are obviously, like I said, shouts of, of, of joy and, and, um, and, and, and adulation. So, but as we go forth, here we are 60, 70, 100 years later with the temple being, or with the, with the walls being rebuilt just yesterday. Think about this. For the next 100 years, there was constant progress happening in the land of Israel or in the, in the city of Jerusalem. Slowly, piece by piece, they're seeing their city coming together Yet, we get this passage of judgment to them. How did things turn badly so quickly is, is really the, 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 the question. So uh, the last time I preached, it's been a while back. Um, I know we have all probably slept since then, but I, I preached on, on the, 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 the book of Zechariah, the, the, the messianic prophecy out of the book of Zechariah. See, this is how things got so bad as quickly as it did. Um, the Jews knew those prophecies, knew the, the, the book of Zechariah. They, they, they knew uh, what that prophet had said as they were uh, preparing to come back to their homeland. So, um, uh, but they were still under Persian control. This land, these people were still under foreign control. And not only that, 
uh, they were waiting for when the moment that the king would come humble and mounted on a donkey. They were ready for this economic and political Messiah. See, they had the wrong idea about the Messiah, which is kind of the point of what I was preaching on last time. He hadn't come yet, and their expectations weren't met. They were thinking, you know, keep in mind, their, 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 their expectations weren't met while they were probably staring at the temple that God had given them. Remember, they were not that far from exile. This is, this is, uh, this is crazy. Um, but they, they, their love for him, their love for God was contingent upon the things that he would do for them. It was a very, very much of a what have you done for me lately attitude with the Israelites at this time. So, um, I mean, and this is, we, we can see this. If you'll turn to Malachi chapter one, you can see this right here at the very, very beginning of, of, of the book. Look at verse two. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Of all the pompous, idiotic things that you could say back to the Lord, it would be, how have you loved us when you are a member of the nation of Israel? Oh, I, I don't know, maybe parting the Red Sea, uh, bringing you out of slavery from Egypt, uh, perhaps giving you a land flowing with milk and honey that was formerly belonging to the Canaanites. Maybe that's a way that he showed you that he loved you. Uh, perhaps blessing you beyond measure in the presence of all of your enemies. Maybe that's a way that God has demonstrated to you that he's loved you. Perhaps it's bringing you back from exile where you were staying in Babylon, right? Changing the leadership there, creating safe passage for you to come home. Maybe all of these ways is a way, I don't know, that God maybe have expressed his love for you. How could they ask that question? How could anybody ask that question? Um, but asking that question, God answers why. Look, look, look at, look at uh, just a little bit beyond that in verse two. Was not Esau... Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of wilderness. You know what the Lord is saying there? I have loved you because I loved you, because I had chosen you. You were the people that I set my love upon. Does it sound familiar to, to uh, Romans chapter 9? It should. Because that is the same exact argument that Paul is given for the, uh, the potter to choose the clay, right? So, um, and that's because God doesn't change. The reason why we can look here in the Old Testament and see this in Malachi chapter 1 and go all the way over to Romans chapter 9 is because God is the same. The way God deals with his people is exactly the same, right? Um, but... He, so the people are, are, even though they've been unfaithful, even, they've, even though they've been a, a certain way to him, God has constantly brought them back and showed them grace and showed them mercy. And the people keep rebelling. His people are not consumed. He's constantly showing grace to his people. Um, but he does deal with their sins. So what are the sins that are being addressed through this book? So there's three major sins. There's three major sins. I don't know if, if those of you who are taking notes, you want to write these down, write these down because this is the direction that we're going to be going. So uh, sin number one that is being dealt with in the book of Malachi is the neglecting of service to God and improper tithing. Uh, number two is the defilement of the priesthood. And number three, simply put, is divorce. These are the three major sins that are taking place. The first one that I want to look at is the neglect of service to God, okay? Okay. 
So the priests had begun, and I'll show little examples because there's quite a bit. I'm, this is really, it's a passage over Malachi chapter 3 and an overview of the entire book. It's only four chapters long, but it's quite a bit to get through. So um, I'll, kind of, I'll kind of explain the chapter, and then you know, we'll look at a passage so that you can see it, and then we'll move on in that way. Um, so the priests had begun taking in defiled animals out of laziness um, and disregard, and they knew better. They knew the law of God. What does the law of God require the animals to be without blemish, right? The best of what you have. That is what goes uh, to the Lord. And to make it worse, to make it worse, this all doesn't just fall on the priests, but it also falls on the people. The people um, became lazy in their giving to the Lord. They, they started to choose animals that had blemishes and, and, and defilements. And um, they were giving their second and third fruits to the Lord, where the Lord requires the first fruits. Look at verses six through eight. Look at verses six through eight here in chapter one. Uh, it says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is despised, is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? They have absolutely no idea how evil this is. Think about what the sacrificial system meant to these people. This was the means that God had given his people that their sins would be forgiven. Okay. Th think about, think about, um, you know, uh, if we could have a conversation with God and say, God, how can I be right with you? I mean, he, he does, you know, uh, th there's a lot of other stuff that goes into this, but if it was simply just, you know, uh, with love, bring the first fruits. If, if someone loved God, they would happily be bringing their first fruits. Like, please, Forgive my sin. Let the, 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 the punishment of my sin fall on this bull. But here we have people that are giving defiled animals, blind animals, lame animals, the ones that they didn't really care. So ah, we'll just, we'll give this third, fourth, fifth thing to God and he'll be good with that. Well, no, he won't. No, he won't. And to be honest with you, those sacrifices should have never made it to the table. The, 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 the priests should have tossed those animals out but they didn't care either. Nobody cared. Nobody was loving God as he ought to be loved during this, this time. Um, you can see the contempt. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, um, actually, he says, so you also say my how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it. It's odd. It's odd. Uh, it was interesting. Look at it. I'm like, so you know, my, my first thought is like, so when somebody was upset or they were like in contempt, you know, back in those days, it was sniffing an actual thing. You know, I, I got into the, to the, to the book and, and started to look at what the, what the original languages say for this phrase. And it's, it's one that we're all familiar with. It's the one that we get every time that we ask our kids or tell our kids that it's yard work day, right? It's this, oh, it's just labored breathing out of contempt for whatever it is that you're asking. Look, Look at the words, my how tiresome it is. Why, why would they say that? This is, this is just, 
this is um this is a it's 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 raining on my parade do i really have to take this goat or this this bull or this lamb or what have you do i really have it's such a pain i have to go out into the field and i have to get it and i have to run it all the way up to the temple and it has to be sacrificed boring boring lame lame i don't want to do it anymore that's what's happening here right so um think about that for a second though think about think about in the book of genesis when the lord god commands abraham to sacrifice the child of promise could anything have been more burdensome than that? And yet Abraham takes Isaac, who is the promised child, and he marches him up the hill, fully prepared to do that which the Lord had commanded him to do out of faith. And here we are all of these years later, and people can't even be bothered to take their best bull and take it to the temple because that is the means by which God is forgiving their sin. That's how far we've fallen from Abraham to this point. Um, boy, that kind of sounds like the church today, doesn't it? Right? Um, I know Christ gave up his life for me. I know that I have gone from the kingdom of darkness. I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. But do I have to go to church? I got a lot of things that I need to be doing on Sunday. Do I have to give a certain amount so that the place where I go to worship can operate, right? Because tithing is part of this. And by the way, this is, we've never talked about tithing ever in the last two, in the two years that we've been here. We are not a church that preaches tithing every single week, but this is part of the text. Do we really have to do this? I do. I love Jesus and I'm grateful for what he's done for me, but do I have to do that? Yeah, I think if we're honest, we can all find moments like that, can't we? Like, oh, do I really have to go and stop what I'm doing right now in the middle of this movie and go and start studying for the catechism that I have to teach on Sunday? It happens with me. But that's what we're dealing with here. Um, how tiresome it is, right? Disdainfully sniff. Shame on us. Shame on me. You know, um, Anyways, we'll get more into that later on. Uh, God also deals, uh, like I said, with the improper tithing of these people. This happens more in chapter 3 because the, the, the giving is linked to the heart. Right? You, you've, you've probably heard it uh, preached from a pulpit before that, um, that you know, if, if you pull up the, 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 your spending habits in your bank account, wherever your money goes, that's where your heart is. Right. And uh, such is the case with the Lord. The Lord had commanded these people through his law that has been transferred from generation to generation to generation that this is what I demand from you. Your first fruits, they are to go to the priest. God uses these first fruits to feed the priests. There's a whole reason for this, and it's directly tied to the love that people have for God. But the second major sin that I want to talk about is the defilement of the priesthood, the defilement of the priesthood. So what does that mean? Turn over to chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 9. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways and are showing partiality in your instruction. So since they have departed from the law of God, and uh, in God's ways and have given wicked counsel uh, that shows partiality, that leads into the third sin. 
because they do not because they do not know the law of God, they are not able to then instruct the people with the law of God. They don't, well, since they have, I'm not going to say since they don't know the law of God, since they disregard the law of God, the people that are coming to them are receiving wicked instruction, which leads directly into the third major sin. Okay, and it's it, it's not it's not um, a coincidental that these same three sins are the same sins that Christ was dealing with with the religious leaders of his day some 430 years later. Okay, this, the, the, these, are, these are deeply, deeply rooted things. But the third topic is the topic of divorce. What was happening is, is these people were coming in from the foreign nations. They had their wives and their youth. Many of them grew up in captivity, in the exile. And when they had come back to Jerusalem, they started to divorce their wives and take for, wi- take for wives the foreign women that were inhabiting uh, Judah and Israel at the time. This was obviously a great offense to the Lord. If we think about the sins of Solomon, this is what Solomon had done. What was, the, what was the, the, the decree to Solomon? The reason why God had appointed that you do not take a wife, uh, 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 you know, one of these foreign women who are um, um, idolaters, because then they will lead you to start serving the, their gods. You'll depart from my ways and you'll start serving these other gods who are no gods um, at all. But that's, that's why he had, he had um, uh, said not to do that long, long before any of this. Um, let's go ahead and read, um, what did I have here? Uh, let's read verses, uh, 13 through 17 in chapter two, verse 13 through 17. So your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And you say it is, wait, uh, I'm reading chapter three, sorry. Chapter two, verse 13, that didn't sound right. Um, and this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. I'll let you hold on to that and chew on that for a little bit. And what did that one do while seeking godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words and you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the justice of God? Now, guys, this is, this is a very good passage of scripture if you want to see how the Lord defines uh, marriage. How the Lord defines what marriage is. It is a covenant. It is a covenant that is to represent the covenant that he has made with his people. And the covenant that he has made with his son, that he would bring a certain people to redemption, a specific people to redemption, right? This is, this is the, the, the image of the covenant that God makes in our own lives. Um, but it's, it's, it's no wonder that these people uh, forsook the, the covenant of God while they've grown cold to him. They can't even honor the covenants that they've made on earth with the person that's sitting right next to them. People that do not understand the covenant that God calls us to is not going to understand the covenant that they make with a wife or with a husband or with a kid or in a church, right? All of these different covenants that, 
that we make. But look, look at the final words. Look at the final words. Where is his justice? Where is the Lord's justice? And that's the final straw. That's the final straw. One last warning. The Lord is now going to show you where his justice is. And he's going to do so with a promise. And that's our passage today here in chapter 3. You want to see how the Lord is going to uphold his promise? Let's start reading in chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Obviously, this is John the Baptist that he's speaking of. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. God says that in a very sarcastic way. This, this, uh, this, this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in. Just keep in mind, they're looking for the Messiah. It's the wrong Messiah, but they're looking for the Messiah. But this one, uh, he's suddenly going to come to his temple. Well, let's, let's think about Jesus. How many times through the New Testament does he come back to his temple? Right? We have the first time that he goes to the temple, which is eight days after he was born, and he comes to be circumcised, right? The second time that he comes to the temple is as a young boy when he's sitting under the, t- uh, he's sitting with, with the, uh, the, 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 the teachers there at the time. And, you know, he's, he's in, in his father's house, right? We remember this. The third time that he comes to the temple is with a whip of cords and he's overturning tables and he's kicking out all of these teachers and all of these people in the temple who are, uh, who are exchanging money for the animals to be sacrificed. And he's dealing with the defilement of the priesthood and the neglect of the, of, of service to God. That's the third time he comes to his temple when they're making it a, a, a den of thieves, when it should be a house of prayer. And the fourth time he does this, Happens in AD 70 when he comes in judgment, while not physically in the flesh, but but in the form of the Roman army, where they raise this newly built temple that Malachi is talking about. He raises it to the ground, and not one single stone was left upon another. This is the Lord who suddenly comes to his temple, the one in whom you delight. It's sarcastic. They didn't even know him, they didn't even believe him when he called himself the Messiah. They had no clue. No clue at all. Let's go a little bit further here. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap, a refining fire. What they would do is, is when uh, there's precious metals, they, they start to um, uh, acquire a certain type of, of scum or, or um, um, impurities as time goes on. And what they'll do is they'll pass the, the, the piece of gold or the piece of silver, they'll pass it through the fire to burn all of those impurities off. And this is the way that the Lord will be coming to his temple. He'll be a, a refiner. The fuller's soap um, is, um, it, there was a, a, a plant that, that, that these people would use. And what they did is when they mixed it with water, it was like a scrubbing agent. It was an ancient SOS pad, if you will. Um, you know, and, and what they would do is they would scrub uh, clothing or um, or surfaces, and this would cause it from being dirty to making it clean. These are uh, purifying agents, the, the refiner's fire and, and the fuller's soap. So um, these are the things that the Lord is going uh, uh, to be to be doing. Um, it's kind of what we see in Psalm 51, right? When, when, when uh, David asks uh, of the Lord that he would uh, that he would make him clean, that he would wash him. It would be that kind of, of motion. But th- these are the things that the Lord was going to do whenever he returns um, uh, back to this. So we're going to go a little bit further. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Now, 
if you talk to a believing Jew or an Orthodox Jew today, they will say, or, or really a dispensationalist, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, th th this is all pointing to the time, you know, uh, later on when there's a second temple or when the, when the, the, the third temple is going to be rebuilt and yeah, he's going to restore the priesthood. That's not what he's talking about. Although in Christ's life, he did restore some of the sons of, of, uh, of Levi. Okay. And it happens in the book of Acts chapter or the book of Acts chapter six, verse seven. If you want to write that down, you can see where some of the, uh, of the Levites, um, uh, came to the, the, the knowledge of a saving faith and they actually wound up repenting and doing their will. But what's actually meant here is the royal priesthood, the royal priesthood and who, it, who are the royal priesthood, if not the people that have been saved by face, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. We're called a royal priesthood, aren't we? He is going to purify the sons of Levi. If you believe in Christ today, that's you and that's me. We're all sons of Levi, right? It's not the Jew. It's not. It's not all um, 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 Hebrews that are Hebrews or Jews that are Jews, but those who have faith in what God has done, right? He's talking about all who would believe. Let's go a little bit further. And uh, so he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Well, that's what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit, right? When God sets his love upon one and he saves this person from the person that they were, he, they're then going through the, the, the refining is happening from the inside out. The impurities are being burned off. We're talking about sanctification. The course of life, as we go along, we are putting sin to death. We're noticing sin, confessing sin, putting it to death. And those who are part of the royal priesthood are being brought to this point where we are refined and made in the image of Christ, where we start to show Christ's image on us, right? That's what he's talking about. Verse four, then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. So why, let me ask you this question. So then why would, if why restore the sons of Levi this is, this is where the, 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 the Jews, I think, would have a really hard time interpreting this. He just said he was going to purify and restore the sons of Levi. But then he says he's going to come upon them in judgment. Why would he restore the sons of Levi and then blow it all up? Right? Why, would, why does that come before this? He's talking about something else. He's talking about the messenger of the covenant, the gospel that Christ brings with him to set people free, and then he's going to bring judgment upon this old covenant system that was about to die, that was about to go away. Let's carry on a little bit further. Um, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will, be, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. And against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, those who uh, act in, in opposition to his will uh, and to his revealed law is really what all of that is. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 
you know, the final chapter of Malachi, chapter four, is really just a reiteration of what we read here in Malachi chapter three. Um, we get this warning from God and then absolute silence from God for the next 430 years. God says absolutely no more to them. He sends no more prophets. And what winds up happening in that 430 years, there is complete darkness. 430 years of hardening. I told you what the mindset was when this letter was written. The end was already in sight. There was already apathy from the people. You're going to go, go. We don't really trust you anyways. We don't see our Messiah yet. Now imagine how much more rooted that is after 430 years when Christ comes. That's the environment that Christ comes into, okay? Just to give you an example of how, of how bad um, all of this is, but divorce was imminent, so it seemed, right? This, there's no way that, that God is going to continue to bless this and, and carry this through. There was no way out. But God, the good husband and full of grace, the one who is faithful. Remember, Israel's not faithful. We're not faithful apart from God, right? But God, who remembers his covenant, We've demonstrated through the book of Malachi already how these people were incapable of keeping the covenant that they promised. You know, every single one of these sins that we read about today, the defilement of the priesthood, the neglect of the service to God and divorce, all of these things were addressed only five years prior by the prophet Nehemiah, who's also the governor that, uh, you know, take these defiled animals to the governor and see what he would say. It was Nehemiah that he was talking about. Um, but anyways, that was a side note. Um, so, um, I shouldn't have gone by that rabbit hole. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so God, full of grace, remembers his covenant, even with the people that took a cov that made a covenant with him only five years prior. That's where I was. Only five years prior have already backed out and become hardened to the point that they are. Um, think about how good God is in spite of all this. Think about where these people are and all the things that have gone on, he's given them the temple. He's given them the walls. He's brought them back to their home and they still despise him. They despise his word. They despise the sacrificial system that he's given them. They don't want to fulfill their covenant. Everything else is looking more appealing because they're sick and tired of the drought. They're sick and tired of all these things. And yet God, fast forward 430 years, the light of the world comes. Think about the goodness of God. Do you guys know the story of Hosea and Gomer? It's probably the most beautiful story in the entire Bible. And it's one that gives a very, very good illustration to what we're seeing here when we're talking about the loving kindness and the goodness of God towards his people. Um, Hosea is ordered to marry a prostitute. And God tells him what's going to happen before he's going to, I want you to go and I want you to marry this woman. And she is going to commit adultery over and over and over again on you. And that's what Hosea does. He goes and he finds Gomer and he brings her in as his, as his wife. And she commits adultery on him over and over and over again. He had to have been losing his mind. There's no way that Hosea going through what he went through could not have gone all the way through with it apart from the grace of God. There's no possible way. No human person could suffer being cheated on over and over and over again. And still, as she continues to go out and commit all of these adulterous acts, Hosea 
faithful to the covenant that he made with her was go and he would provide for her and he would bring her back. He would bring her back over and over again until one time she doesn't come back. So what Hosea does is he goes and he provides money to the man that she's staying with, the man that does not care for her. He says, take care of her for me. As time goes on, she winds up being sold. She's being sold into slavery of sorts. And on a stand, I don't know, you know, you read, you know, some of the, some of the stuff about this, when they would do in these times, when they were selling women into slavery at these times, they would take off everything that they had and they would stand on the platform and all of the bidders would then, you know, offer how much they were willing to bid for this person. And what happens is Hosea comes in to this event and he offers a price that no one else could pay for Gomer. After all of the adultery, after all of the unfaithfulness, he comes in with a price that no one could match. What was going through her head at that time? Why on earth would you do this for me? She put Hosea through hell on earth. Yet he still comes and he pays this price that no one else could match. You want to talk about the loving kindness of God. That is exactly what he's done for us. That is exactly what he's done for us. God will not forget his covenant. God will not forget his people. And if you are in Christ today, think, and you think about all of the things that he's brought you through. I have a conversation with Carolyn every time this conversation comes up, and it's always so amazing to me because she's been a Christian for a long time. And she'll say, um, you know, I just can't believe how God is, how good God has been to me after all of these years. And I, I can't, I can't, I, I'm looking forward to the day when I can understand that. But I'm like, even just for me, after these, 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 you know, short, you know, few years, six, seven years that, that God has been so good to me. I look and I say, how is it that God has kept me for these seven years? I know me and I can't commit to anything apart from my wife for seven years or raising my kids. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not built that way, but yet God has been good to me. He has kept me in the fold of his sheep, as much as I have tried to stray, as unfaithful as I have been in my thoughts in certain times, as unfaithful as I've been in my actions at times, God has had mercy on me and he's kept me over and over and over again. And that's where the assurance of our faith comes from. We are children of God and he's been good to me through what I've done. He purchased me. I was the one who was standing naked on the platform with bidders who didn't care about me, offering up money for me. And he's the one that came and paid the price in full and a price that nobody else could pay to purchase me after all that I've done. And he's done the same for you. Why, why would we think that God is not going to be faithful for the next 10 years, next 10 minutes? the next 20 years, 50 years, 60 years. Why would he not be faithful going forward? Of course he's going to be faithful. If, he, if ever there was a moment where he wasn't going to be, it would have been with these people. But he was still faithful to them, like he is to you and to me.
So therefore, and I'm getting to the end here. Therefore, here's the application for today's sermon as we look at the book of Malachi. Um, I want you to meditate on that. I want you to meditate on that when you're in your prayers and we come to the, to the portion of our prayers where we are confessing our sins to God to remember the price that he paid that no one could match and how his promises are sure. I cannot have faith in myself, but I can have faith in the one who bought me. And if he bought me when I was at the state that I was in, there is no reason that he's not going to keep me going forward because he is faithful. That is where our worship comes from. Not, be, not from my ability to be good. Not from my ability of, of saying, oh, you know what? I had a good week where I didn't sin a whole lot. So now I can go in and I can worship or I can take the Lord's Supper or I can do whatever. No, no, because of his faithfulness and because of his goodness, because of Christ's righteousness, not mine, I can come into his presence with boldness before the throne of God and I can commune with him and I can talk with him and I can make requests of him and I can praise his holy name. That's why we do this. Um, second way that we can apply this, honor your covenants. Honor your covenants the way God has honored his covenant. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your mother and your father. Do what they ask you to do. Without grumbling, without disdainfully sniffing, right? We were just talking about earlier. Honor your covenants. If you agree to pay something, pay it. Honor your covenants. When if you, you show me a guy or a, a lady that can honor their covenants on earth, I'll show you somebody who knows God. Because he continually makes right with me, even if the other, even if I'm not making right with him all of the time. That comes out in the way that we live our lives. So I want you to think about that. Honor your covenants. Um, we talk about uh, the covenant in the church. We're a covenant family. That's what we believe the church is. It's a bunch of believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ and we covenant with God and we also covenant with one another, love each other, forgive each other. If somebody says something that offends you one day or seems crass, forgive them, right? Make right with the covenant members when we come to take the Lord's Supper. We need to, if, if you come in with, 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 uh, with frustration or, or anger in your heart with something that a brother has said or done, go to that person, make it right with them before coming to the Lord's table. We honor our covenants. Um, and the last way I think that is going to show more than anything is that we bring this message of redemption to the world around us. What this world is, what this world needs, what we pray every single weekend for our leaders is that they would come to know God and that they would subject themselves to his will so that we could see the gospel go out because this is not a simply a matter of moralism of rule keeping. The heart needs to be changed. And the only way that happens is by the message of the gospel that Christ came and he lived a perfect life. He was punished and hung on the cross for the sins of his people. And he died. He died for the sake of his people. And he was raised again three days later in new life purchasing life ever after for those who would call upon his name and would repent from their sins. Afterwards comes the Holy Spirit 
and we're made new, new creatures. This is what the world needs. If we want to honor that which God has done for us, we keep those three things at the forefront of our minds. I want you guys to think about this this week. I want you to remember these things, that the love of God towards us comes out in our lives, towards our loved ones, and towards him. That's why Jesus says that the most important commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. And the second is like it. We love our neighbor as ourselves because it is on that that the entire law is hung from. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we come to you in this time and we thank you for